This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you're about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. So last night, um, in Guy's description of, of meta practice, he explained five aspects of how meta works and what it is really. And uh, three of them I would myself sort of lump together under heartfulness, the tenderness, the connecting, the joy and happiness that happens through the practice. And then another piece is the practice of concentration, how this unification happens by the repetition of this ongoing momentum. And the fifth piece that he mentioned, which is what I want to talk more about tonight, is the uh, effect this also has on us of purification and what that means and how that works and how to deal with all of that. The thing about metta is that, I love this description of it, this is one Ajahn Sumedho says, metta or love is wisdom's natural radiance. When there's understanding, there is an expanding in the heart. In the moment of going, oh yeah, I see, there's a, a letting go of something, a letting in of something, an allowing, a softening. Simultaneous with an aha moment, there isn't, oh my God, it's the opposite effect. And this continues and can be um, understood in the vastest possible way. So for instance, somebody who's really a very fine human being, who's reached their fullest potential, is nothing but friendly, is nothing but easy, open. It's It's the way wise people behave. So when we're around inspiring teachers and wise people, we enjoy them. We say they're inspiring or they're brilliant or something like that. But the feeling we have is safety, is we can hang out with them, it's comfortable, it's, it's lovely. Because the heart is unimpeded by any guarding, any separation the natural radiance, and not just the natural, but that word radiance, because there's this warm, like the sun, you know, radiating aura that comes out when the heart is peaceful, when the mind is clear. So these aren't, part of what I want to say tonight is that our practice of insight and our meta practice aren't very far apart. It may seem, and as we describe them, especially when it's new for people, you know, this other practice kind of thing, and we do different techniques and different skillful means, but these are actually very close practices. I would say, for me, I feel this, that the the very attitude of our Vipassana practice is a friendly attitude, if it's really Vipassana. 
what we're doing is being with what's happening. And when you're with what's happening, you're behaving like a friend. And I know we've said, several of us already have said the word friendship. And I've always felt like this meta really is a, like, is a friendly, is being friendly. And I just would like to think a little bit more about that. When you are with somebody who you consider a friend, it feels safe. There isn't an agenda. You know, it's comfortable. And they're on your side. And they understand, or they want to understand. And they aren't necessarily always going to be positive to you, because when they're a really good friend, they have, you know, clarity to give or constructive commentary. But there is a safety, and there is an easiness, and there is it's where you want to go when, you're, when you need somebody to anything. You go to your friends. It's safe and, and uh, supportive. And likewise, when you're being friendly to somebody, that itself is being meta-ish, meta-like. That's simply what it is. It's not more dramatic. It's not louder. It's not more thrilling and exciting, necessarily. We do have a tendency, especially in this culture, to be so caught up with the drama. You know, we're trained every time we read anything in print, big, loud headlines and advertise everything to like loud in your face. It's actually more ordinary. It's just this, the way a friend isn't like fantastic all the time, but there they are. They're always there. There's a steadiness. It's quiet. So I want to talk about how, in doing this, um, how it works as a purification practice. Not at all unlike how our insight practice is a purification practice. And of course, I don't need to explain how it works, partly because you're going through it. So you're all <laughs> dealing with all of these processes of purification. One of the teachers that I had a few years ago, many years ago now, said the whole process of purification, think of it like doing the laundry. And when you do the laundry, if you actually watch the process of doing the laundry, what you have is clothes and water, and the water's getting increasingly dirty while the clothes are getting increasingly clean. You cannot have a cleansing process like laundry without seeing the junk. <laughs> My very first encounter with a spiritual friend, I would say, a young hippie, idealistic, before I had really ever done any serious meditation, um, I met a woman who was a, very, uh, was a very devotional kind of person, and she had a guru, an Indian guru, and she, um, she had an amazingly strong practice, and I'm in my 20s, and went to visit her and hung out with her. Actually, I lived in my hippie van in her garden for the winter in Joshua Tree in 1972. And um, she would meditate two or three hours a night, and all night Saturday night. And it was all loving, this guru. And so to me, she was my age, but she was like, I couldn't, I had great respect for her. And, um, and I began doing my first meditation practice with her and her friends in her sangha. And uh, fairly early on was like getting a little bit upset with all the stuff that I was seeing about myself. And she was like, it's fabulous. And she said, you can, can you expect to go up into the attic where all of your stuff has been stored for a long, long time, turn on the light and not see any cobwebs, <laughs> it means you're actually going into the attic. And until you go there, you're not going to be able to sort out stuff. You, like, it's part and parcel of the process. 
So she was so encouraging. I'll never forget that image. You may want to think of the image of the basement rather than the attic, but she said attic, and I, in England we don't have basements. You have, you have attics or lofts, so that's a better image for me. And so, of course, as you know, as we do this, being with ourselves, however carefully or kindly or cruelly or patiently or impatiently, being with ourselves, looking, we are, it's kind of like going into the attic where it's dark and gloomy and who knows what's in there and looking and the eyes adjust to the dark and they start seeing more and more and more and more. So things begin to show up that in our normal day-to-day, not looking so deeply at the truth of things, but being preoccupied and busy and friendly and stressed out and all the rest of it, shopping, is we aren't actually seeing very deeply what's there. We aren't focusing on what's the deeper stuff. But as we look, things come into focus, like you know when somebody turned out the light or you go into a darkened room. So our eyes get more sensitive and we, get, we start able to see what we couldn't see before. And that's a little dismaying often, because we don't actually, we didn't expect to see that. We don't want to see that. Why everyone in the world isn't meditating all day long is because they don't want to see that. It, uh, it isn't like the you know, funnest thing some of the time, as you know. There's a teacher called Bhante Gunaratana. He's written a couple of books, one book called Mindfulness in Plain English. I'm sure lots of you know about him if you don't know him. And he says that uh, meditation takes gumption. And I like this word gumption. It's kind of like, you know, to actually be willing to go there and look at this stuff. So uh, there's a kind of gutsiness that it takes. And a, I don't know. there's also a lot of friendliness that it takes that makes it possible. Without friendliness, it's hard. And it's like, oh God, it's embarrassing and we struggle. As in Vipassana practice, and I'm, I know that a number of you have done Vipassana practice, even though um, a few of you have been doing meta practice, the more of you are familiar with Vipassana practice, but just as with that practice, when we do this and we sit down and we go through this process, as these various pieces of junk from the attic start showing up, coming into focus, um, it's difficult. And what, how we usually respond to these pieces is with one or another of some kind of struggle. Classically, these are called hindrances. They are what stop us from being able to be okay with being with this stuff. And, uh, and they're, they're the common reactions to being with difficulty of different kinds. And they work the same way. They show up and they manifest in meta practice as they do in Vipassana practice, as I'm sure they do in miscellaneous spiritual practices, as they do in our lives. It's these various reactions and struggles which keep us from being easy and free and enlightened beings. So um, I want to talk a little bit about how they show up in meta and how we work for them, work with them in meta practice. The first one, the one of we want. It's a bit of a setup doing meta because we want to be loving. We're actually trying to be loving. We are encouraging being loving. We are attempting to mimic being enlightened. There's a lot of wholesome desire here. 
but it can easily be unwholesome in that if we don't have a feeling of loving, there's something wrong and we want it. And if we do, we want to stay and keep it and oh, we've got it. And then when it goes away, then we've lost it and we're unhappy. And it's a, a total setup to catch us in this, you know, chasing the ball kind of thing. So it's not so easy to be pursuing a practice of sweetness and connection that feels so right and that we know is, is wholesome and is how we all want to be and we all want to be free without falling into the wanting it. How to want in a wholesome way is really what we're being asked to do with, with all our spiritual practice. Wholesome wanting is wanting that doesn't get upset when it doesn't get. It doesn't hang on to having to have what it wants. It can want it and at the same time allow for it to be there or not be there or happen when it happens and the big picture be running the show rather than my agenda. When it's just up to me and my agenda, if I get what I want, then I'm okay for a while, and then when I don't, I'm not. That's actually too narrow a way of seeing it for it to be wholesome. Wholesomeness doesn't mean not caring, not wanting, but it's not limited to have to have it on my time. So it's not the hanging on. Attachment is the limit of wanting. whether it's a meta period where we feel that we're flowing with it and you know things are it's, oh, this is beautiful and I'm full of gratitude and this is a beautiful place and whatever, that kind of a thing. Or whether we're doing a Vipassana practice in a Vipassana retreat and there is clarity and there is a concentrated steady mind. Whenever we have a good period, we tend to judge it as good and it's doomed. We are doomed. The seeds of dukkha therein lie because it's so hard to not get trapped by being unhappy when it's not like that. So be wary. Okay, not to not enjoy it when it's there and not to really feel it and be with it, but just know it, everything's going to change. And that's okay if we remember. This isn't the ultimate. I haven't finally achieved the ultimate. As soon as you think like that, you're in big trouble. Not just with meta, but with meta, with all of how we go through our lives, actually. There's a, there's a, particularly our spiritual practice. We have this tendency to be idealistic, but this really can happen with meta practice because we focus really on the perfections of being, on the divine abidings, the, the divine ones abide in these states of love and compassion, beautiful, and we know they're beautiful. But it's so easy for us to idealize these states and to be unrealistic. I call this the tyranny of idealism. And if we are wanting to be what we're not, being idealistic about who we are, not realistic about who we are, it's awful. You know, but there we are, just like never good enough. And so the opposite is happening, in fact. Then there's that frustration and blame and judgment and criticism and all of the negative sides of that. So... It's a very uh, slippery practice to be mimicking loveliness without being idealistic about it, retaining some realism, 
that at times my heart can open. And at times, and I'm discovering by doing this practice, that there are more times than I have before. But there are times when it can't, and it won't, and it's tired, and it gets fed up, and something bugs it, and somebody bugs me. And that's realistic. That isn't a failure. But it's very slippery, especially in meta, to not become idealistic about it, not, not set ourselves up. The second of these five is not liking, which, I mean, it's, it's not almost a second thing. It's the other side of the one I just described. There is the idealism, and as soon as we're like that and there's something lovely, there is the absence of it, which is a problem. So there is the aversion right there. It's like woven into the wanting. It's the other flip side, it's the same thing, close, close. Siamese twin of wanting is, is not wanting, not wanting what isn't, wanting what is and not wanting what isn't. And if we want what isn't, we're not wanting what is. There we are. <laughs> right in there, caught. And uh, you will be seeing it, and you will have been seeing it, and we know we've been talking to you lots of this time. Wanting to be nice, being nice, and then finding, oh, some criticism. You have this lovely benefactor, somebody you really like, and you're wishing them well and wishing them well and focusing on them, and you start thinking about all these reasons why you shouldn't be wishing them well. <laughs> Just started to show up. <laughs> so should you have a different one? And It's the way of it. Called aversion or resistance or any of the thousand negative things we experience, disappointment, frustration, even just slight little niggly irritation, the whole range, fear, depression, loneliness. We've been listening to you today, all these things you've been going through, and not just negative, but that's what I'm talking about at this moment. So these are hindering us from being okay, aren't they? When you are struggling, you're not okay. That's the definition of the thing. The thing is, we make our struggles even worse. We double our trouble because we don't like to struggle. I mean, struggling's bad enough. But then we criticize ourselves for struggling. We have aversion to our aversion. Something isn't okay, and then, oh no, this means I'm not a good enough person. Oh no, we start telling, adding all this extra story on top of it. It's bad enough to have a version from, you know, somebody comes along and here you are, tempting to be nice, and somebody comes by and there's this negative reaction. That's not so pleasant. But then you add on top of that all this, I'm never going to get this together. This is awful. Oh, I'm sure everyone else is being really nice. They all look so peaceful, and I'm the only one sitting here full of <laughs> The Buddha called this adding two, two darts. It's like being struck by a dart of poison and then adding another one of all of the aversion to this. And we do that second dart to ourselves. Some of you may know, but I worked for 20 years as a midwife. And when women are going through their labor, there's like one dart. That's like painful. And I'm with them, and my role with them is to help them manage that pain. 
And how they don't manage that pain is to add the second dot of, oh my God, this is terrible, I'm never going to do it, I'm going to fall apart, people are going to think I'm a complete kid, oh my, I can't keep doing this for another 16 hours, this is scary, terrifying. That's their extra. There is the sensation, yes, that's the first part. But if we can leave it at that, that's enough already. Another of these things that we react, how we react, how we struggle, is um, restlessness. That's quite interesting. I'm a newer teacher than my colleagues here, but I'm going to ask them some other time, perhaps, if this isn't their observation, but it's mine, is in a Vipassana retreat, there is a fair amount of restlessness in the beginning, in the beginning part of the period. Um, and in, uh, the, there are two, two that come together here. One is agitation, restlessness, squirminess, jumpiness. And the other is its opposite, which is dullness, sinking, sleepy, sloth. I love that word. Sloth and torpor. And I am observing that in, uh, in the meta-retreats that I have taught, there is more sloth and less agitation. Whereas in Vipassana retreats, there's more agitation and less sloth. I don't know if the others find that so, but it's an interesting thing to think about. I think it's because there is a, maybe it's the way we teach it, or it's the way we, our attitudes towards our Vipassana practice may be a little less kind, a little more strivy, a little more hard-working. There's definitely more laid back, more people sitting in comfy chairs, people coming in a little later for everything in a, in a meta-retreat. And along with that ease, I think there's you know, sit more comfortably, and people are nodding off. Anyway, I'm hearing, I don't know about the others, more people commenting on sleepiness and dullness than talking about squirminess and agitation. Nevertheless, it does exist, even in a meta-retreat. And uh, it's that feeling of, like, you just want more stimulus, you want more something. It's like, how about a little music or something, or laughing or <laughs> movement, or moving a little, you know, faster walking or something. This is too... It's not enough stimulus. We go, how can we expect to be, just switch off? We go from high speed, zooming around, driving miles a day, music on, advertising, being bombarded, and we come to like, shh. And we don't just like switch gears like perfectly like that. It's gonna take a little while to adjust. So there's going to be a feeling of this is too quiet, too still, too sensitive too nice, you know, <laughs> I need a little stimulus. That It can take a bit for people to shift gears. So if you're finding sometimes you just want to run around or laugh out loud or something like that, it's, this, it's your changing gears. It settles down and the, the rhythm of the thing starts to match your rhythm. But sometimes it does feel like a bit of an imposition. And because we feel imposed upon, we usually feel too contained, it's too tight, and that's why we, we're rebelling when there's that agitated feeling. More so, as I said, is the one of being dull and being sleepy. And, uh, and you know, that one, as you know, comes from the similar life that's too much, too busy, too stimulating, and we're too tired and we don't realize it and we keep going because of all the activity. Take away all the activity. <sighs> and we, don't, we just don't have enough energy without it to keep going. So we, we feel this feeling of sinking and dullness and so on and so forth. 
I have to just mention this. Once I was in Costa Rica, and I was going on a river rafting trip, this beautiful river, and uh, we came around the bend of the river in our raft, and there was a branch, a tree with a branch hanging right low over the river, and on the branch, dripping wet, was a sloth. And it had fallen into the river and was climbing itself out, and I'm sure it was hurrying to get out of our way, and it was moving. <laughs> this, is like, this is about as fast as it was moving. They only come down out of the trees once every six weeks because it takes so long. <laughs> it's a great word for the sinking, like, sludgy kind of mind, sloth. The fifth one is doubt. Particularly when we're doing something new, if this practice is new to you, and when we're doing anything new, before we kind of get the hang of it, or we get going, or it sort of takes root, we kind of like, I wonder if I can do this. That kind of skepticism and unsureness is, you know, it's rife. If this is a new practice for you, it's really quite common to be going, you know, I don't know about this, you know, I don't know if this is, if this is for me at all. I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if this is even meaningful. These just are words. Do they, does this ever actually really feel like anything? You know, those kinds of thoughts. These are all thoughts of doubt. We're doubting ourselves, doubting the practice, doubting our capacities, doubting our teachings, teachers, just so that you are familiar that you're not the only one. I find it very reassuring to remember, oh, that's all it is. It's just the mind in doubt right now. The problem with this, all of these things is, as you know very well, when we think them, we believe what we think about them. We don't just think, oh, I'm a little bit of doubt here. We doubt. <laughs> we doubt we can do it. Or we are asleep, you know. It isn't just that we realize it. So the, partly explaining it and reminding you is to help you not be um, absorbed in these hindrances, but to realize, oh, these are hindrances. These are these visitors that come and take me away. So that's in itself very valuable. So um, when we look at these hindrances in terms of metta and metta practice, it's really quite interesting how this works. The, um, the way the teachings are taught are that there's the metta, or the, the pure abodes of the divine ones, which includes us when we're in an enlightened state, in a state of being divine. There is love, the first one, metta, kindness, friendliness. There is, when we're absolutely not in that state, it's opposite. The opposite of love is hate, meanness, negativity, all of those things. We know this, and there are times that these happen to us. We don't like it very much, but it does occur from time to time. But in between the perfection of friendliness and love and its opposite, hatred, there's a whole continuum of not quite perfect love. And when we get close to love, it starts to blur into fooling us that it is love. But it isn't quite, until it's really pure metta, it's impure, if you like. It's got shades of the ego, shades of the limitation of 
the untrained, unwise mind and heart. And these are described as near enemies. Far enemies is the opposite thing, but near enemies is nearly it, but not quite. And this, when we look honestly, is where we spend much more time than in the real deal, because we are not enlightened a lot of the time. And so we may be mimicking kindness and friendliness, but there's a, a little touch of me still. The ego is still there. So these are the near enemies. And we can see how these fit into the hindrances. It's interesting. So the near enemy that masquerades, it said, as love, when it's not really just pure, pure, open-hearted love, is attachment or attached love. It's wanting. It has an agenda. Even if it's loving a person, it's loving a person with wanting this person, wanting them to behave a certain way or certain conditions apply to them and they're supposed to play by certain rules and so on and so forth. So there is an imposition of some kind of condition and the condition is what I'd like is my agenda on this situation, this relationship. This is what D.H. Lawrence says about this little poem he wrote on love. Oh, what a catastrophe. What maiming of love when it was made a personal, merely personal feeling, taken away from the rising and the setting of the sun, and cut off from the magic connection of the solstice and equinox. This is what is the matter with us. We're bleeding at the roots, because we're cut off from the earth and the sun and the stars, and love is a grinning mockery, because, poor blossom, we plucked it from its stem on the tree of life and expected it to keep on blooming in our civilized vase on the table. <laughs> so we've made love, and we do, and we often forget that we think love is much, much smaller than love really is. True spiritual metta is not attached, is not wanting or needing or limited by this clinging. It's open, easy, no clutching. When we come to um, compassion that was introduced this afternoon as a practice, the second of these four divine ways of living in the heart, um, when compassion, the opposite of compassion, of course, is cruelty. The, you know, like when somebody's suffering, it's like, absolutely no sympathy or even increasing the suffering. But the near enemy, which looks and we can convince ourselves sort of that this is actually compassion. Imagine that you're with somebody who's having a hard time. You're visiting somebody who's in hospital who's really sick or something. The near enemy is pity. Pity and or slash fear. It's like, oh, this is so awful. It is, it's having a bit of an agenda of not liking. It's aversion here, see? The, the hindrance of wanting is, shows up when the near enemy of, of love is there. The near enemy of aversion shows up when suffering is there. We don't like suffering. When we're in the near enemy, we're resistant in some way. We pity this person because we wish they weren't like this. We wish this wasn't happening or we're worried or afraid it's going to get worse, or we want to fix it, or we try and find the cause, or we try and blame the caregiver or something. We're not able to just say, this is so hard. 
And this was the challenge and is the challenge of caregivers being with people and holding a steadiness when they're suffering. And many of you do this kind of thing and have done and know what it's like. But working as a midwife, this is what one's doing all the time. There is the struggle. There is this, the anxiety and the pain. And to fall into like, oh, you poor thing, this is awful, which is what often happens to the dads, I must say, <laughs> because they don't want to, they can't stand to see the person they love struggling, is actually not to pity them and not to be afraid of it, but to be able to go, yeah, that's really intense, man. You're really in, that's, wow, that was really a strong one. This is your cooking, I'll tell you. It's really <laughs> happening. <laughs> kind of like, yes, actually, that's right. And it's, it's like, it's a validation instead of a like, oh no, this isn't okay. So this is where it's so much easier for us to fall into this near enemy place, some kind of resisting it when it's difficult. The expanded enlightened being is able, has a capacity to say, oh gosh, this is so hard. Which is why the pure hearted ones, you know, their response to the world and all the tears of the world is, is one of compassion, not one of pity. You poor human beings, the sooner you get enlightened and out of there, the better. It's just like, yeah, being a human is an amazing journey. There's peacefulness with it. But the near enemy doesn't have that. It's resistant, struggling. With the, uh, the third of these four divine abidings, empathetic or sympathetic joy, happy in somebody's happiness, able to enjoy their happiness. The opposite thing is unable to enjoy their happiness. And when somebody's having a really great time and great success and you are completely unable to enjoy it, what happens is you're envious. It's more of an opposite thing. You don't want them to have it. You want to have it. Or you want to have it too. But often you want it instead. You know, you wish I'd won. How come, when's it my turn? The near enemy, this is an interesting one, is um, taught that it's exuberance. So think about this for a while. When something is wonderful, somebody's having a great success, and they're a relatively good friend of yours so that you're not just falling into envy about it, and you're actually happy with them for their happiness, you can fall into being happy about the fun part and lose the heart of connecting to the person. My example in my mind is um, British football fans and, you know, there's a big, you know, their team wins. It's not, I don't know, just because I'm British and they get a little, they have a reputation on the world stage of really getting over-exuberant. I mean, they don't, people don't want them to go to their countries because they're so over-exuberant, they're going to break windows and become a pain in the neck, whether they win or whether they lose. But even when they win, they're like riotously happy, but they lose heart. They lose respect and caring. They just get off on the thrill of it all. That's when we actually disconnect rather than are able to stay really with the person who's happy. It's an interesting thing to observe in yourself. The fourth one, um, this is a very hmm, slippery one again, and a lot of questions come around this, and a lot of not quite being able to understand this happens in throughout people's, I don't know, say throughout, but oftentimes in spiritual practice. The fourth of these Brahma Viharas is equanimity. 
this feels like not very loving or exciting. It feels a little flat for some people if you're not familiar with it. But it's this steadiness of heart which is non-reactive. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether somebody's suffering, whether it's just like everything's okay, whether it's wonderful, it's not having emotional reactivity around. But it's still really loving. The opposite is having emotional reactivity around it. So when there's good or when there's bad, then there's an upset and we don't like it or any of those things, obviously. But when we get into the near enemy territory, which is way where we do our work, that's really where we mostly spend our time, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Indifference. Now, if you're with a good friend, which is the pure metta, the open-heartedness, the friendliness, when you're with a really good friend and you tell them something about something, if they're a really good friend, they'll be like, that's interesting. But if they're not a really good friend, or in that time they're not being very friendly, they'll go, oh, well, whatever. And they'll sort of turn away. They'll, talk to, they'll answer the phone while you're with them. They'll do the things which we consider rude because they're actually not connecting to you. Indifference is shutting down. It's numbing out, turning off, turning away, disconnecting. Equanimity is none of those things. Equanimity is steadiness. It's the, it's the grandmother who understands all the dramas of little children's lives and what goes on and is sweet and loving and fine and calm and rocking in her chair and carrying on knitting and it's all okay. But it's not not caring at all. It's the opposite. They love you, if you're lucky with your grandmother, which I'm about to tell a story about. Um, but they're not reactive. And a lot of people's questions about meditation in general or becoming a Buddhist is, we can get quite confused and think, am I supposed to not care about the world and not care about you know, all the activities that I can do and social justice issues and and so on and so forth. Does this mean I'm going to become kind of beige and vague and it doesn't matter anymore and become sort of a doormat? This is not what it means. That's near enemy territory. Near enemy is indifference, not caring. It doesn't matter. Oh, well, whatever. We're all going to die, so it doesn't matter. That kind of thing. It's this kind of ha floppy hand. The, the, I think the there are various hand mudras that we do in the world which... Uh, like throughout different cultures, gratitude has got this kind of a thing, you know, and like to be really touched, we often touch our hearts. Indifference is like, oh, whatever. It's this kind of... <laughs> Whereas equanimity is like, oh my God. Well, this is amazing and whatever and beyond me and awesome and there's a kind of surrender to the powers that be and this is an act of God and there's a sort of wonder, but there isn't a turning off, oh, whatever. It's different. So be exploring this for yourselves. When we encounter mostly the difficult things, which of course is in the meta practice where compassion arises. The, 
proximate cause of compassion is suffering. If there's suffering, there is compassion. When the heart is open, it's like they, they're companions. Um, how we meet our struggles, how we meet every hindrance, for instance, in our practice is with compassion. Even when we're wanting, it's a struggle to be wanting rather than to be at peace with what is. So when we're in this state of struggle, our meta practice is one of having some compassion for this, wishing it were wonderful or hanging on. And it's obvious when we're in a state of some kind of aversion, negativity, anxiety, blaming, frustration, our practice is to meet this with compassion. What we mean by meet this with compassion is to be able to be friendly and say, oh, this is really difficult. The way we would be with a, a patient, with a friend who was in a, a patient in a hospital who was sick. I think that's one of the most useful images for me about the, an example of what true uh, compassion is that's not pity, is how we are when we're with somebody and being able to just hold their hand and just say, oh, this is hard. I'm here with you. I care. That phrase, you know, that James was saying this afternoon, I care about your suffering. I care about this struggle. Being there with it in a friendly way, the way our good friends are there with us if we're struggling. Not trying to fix us or trying to give us advice how to change it. They may, that may be useful, but really the real friend is there with us. There's a thing to think about. I just would like to have a little mention in here about dukkha. Dukkha is another of those big words, like dharma is such a big word, meaning so many things. It's a very hard word to translate from the Pali, and different people have in different interpretations. One of the things that we tend to think of dukkha, we tend to translate it as suffering, like misery, pain. And there is a certain amount of that in the word dukkha, but dukkha is actually a bigger word than that. And I, I like for myself the word struggle with, for dukkha. It doesn't just mean misery. It just means having some kind of conflictive state that's not a Brahma-Vihara state, that's not an easy, open, okay, at ease, friendly, connected. It's some distancing, some guarding, some wishing, something. That's all dukkha. Other than enlightenment is dukkha, basically. There is either dukkha or there isn't dukkha. First, second, third, noble truth. Either we are resisting something, there's a clutch, or there isn't. There's freedom. So dukkha is a very big word. It isn't just being miserable. So we can start to see that there's, if there's any kind of struggle at all, any resistance, any clutch in the heart feeling, that's some dukkha. Now, how this practice works, and it's not it's so similar to how Vipassana works, is when we are going through our experiences of whatever it may be, doing our practice, and then feeling some kind of emotion about something comes up, a thought happens, a reaction happens, whatever, whatever it is. In Vipassana practice, what we're attempting to do and learning to do is to be able to see the thing that's coming up and let that thing be the object of our awareness. When we aren't doing that, something comes up, say it's a reaction of negativity to something, we are it until we realize, oh, that's what's happening. 
there's, there's judgment here. So in a Vipassana context, we then go, oh, that's what's happening. I see judgment. We've stepped out of being the judge, and we can see that judging is happening. We are now observing what's going on. With metta practice, it's similar. There is doing our metta practice, thinking a negative thought about somebody, feeling upset that we've thought that thought, until we're able to say, oh, resistance is happening. Judging is happening. The O stepping out, recognizing, in Vipassana is seeing clearly, in metta is being friendly. But it's the same thing. It's the not being caught in. It's being able to be bigger, wiser, clearer, recognizing, and caring. This is what's happening. Oh, struggling is what's happening. It's the flavor of Vipassana. It's the same but it's the aspect that cares. It's the flavor part of doing that, of recognizing, of holding what's going on, seeing clearly from the heart's point of view. So whenever we encounter any of these hindrances, whenever we encounter any kind of reactivity or any clutching, the practice of doing this metta is to go, oh, this is what's happening. Meta is meeting it in a friendly way, like a friend does. This is what's happening now. It's as simple as that. The same way in Vipassana, we go, oh, this is what's happening. It's the same. But with focusing, the emphasis in meta is the caring part. The emphasis in, in insight practice is seeing clearly. They're, they're there together. We, we sometimes think, what am I supposed to do with it then? How do, I, how do I then do meta practice with this? And there are different answers to that question, and there's many different skillful means, just as in our Vipassana practice. There's different things at different times to do in different situations. And they all can be appropriate at different times. But the main one is to be able to meet it with a friendliness. The simplicity of like, oh, this is what's happening. To care about it. To care about ourselves. To hold ourselves with some friendliness. Not to judge. Not to be idealistic. All of this. And this attitude is what grows as we keep doing the practice. By doing the simple, like in Vipassana, we're breathing and we're sitting being with our body and we're looking at these various sensations and things become more and more clear to us. With, with meta practice, we are doing our phrases, visualizing these different people, sending loving kindness, so that this friendliness is the way we then meet whatever these moments are. We meet it from a place that's caring, because that's what we're doing all the time, is caring. So that's how the, the various hindrances stop being hindrances, because we hold them with some caring. It's only when we don't care and that we identify with hating this or wanting this or judging that we're sleepy or believing this isn't okay, that's not friendly. Be friendly with it and it no longer is a hindrance. It goes from being a problem to dissolving as a problem. There's a little poem, St. John of the Cross. A rabbit noticed my condition is called. I was sad one day and went for a walk. I sat in a field. A rabbit noticed my condition and came near. 
It often does not take more than that to help at times. Just to be close to creatures who are so full of knowing, so full of love, that they don't chat. <laughs> they just gaze with their marvelous understanding. We always think, especially when we're learning something, that there's got to be more to it. Like, so now how do I, how do I, how do I? Like our, our spiritual, all of our spiritual waking up, it's always less. It's simple. It's just, ah, oh, coming into that place with that marvelous understanding. But we don't trust that often because we think, I need to know the ropes, I need to know the tools, I need to know the tasks, I need to get good at this and proficient. So we, we look and we get busy and we try. It's actually so simple. Can we just be here with whatever's happening? Another piece that really helps with this is... Um, and this we have to keep reminding ourselves all the time because we all have this tendency, it's the way we've evolved as humans, to um, take a situation and turn it into solidity. We solidify. What I mean by this is we have a feeling, say, uh, we're judging ourselves. We don't just say, oh, I'm feeling judging right now. We go, I'm hopeless, period. <laughs> Total, that's it, the whole thing, probably forever. We make something huge out of some moment of something. We do this with everything all the time. Our real experience is a very brief moment, and then there's something else and something else and something else. But each one that catches us, we amplify and solidify and believe. So when it's a problem, when it's one of these hindrances of some kind that's coming up that's difficult, we, by our habitual mind that gets into telling stories and commentary and, oh, no, and this means and this means I'm never going to and the way we do all that. We are making a big, solid problem where actually there isn't a big, solid problem. There's just a moment of something that's not so pleasant. And one of the teachers who uh, lives in Rome, Corrado Pensa, he has this little teaching. By doing this, it's like we are being oppressed by a boulder. Well, when you're being oppressed by a boulder, it's pretty unworkable. It's pretty impossible. It's crushing you. And we feel very stuck, depending on what that might be. It might be fear, it might be loneliness, it might be and some kind of inadequacy or negativity or whatever name. Choose your favorite one. I'm sure you all have little favorite ones. What we do is, in this moment, recognize, oh, this moment is a clutch in the heart. This moment is wanting. This moment is aversion just in a moment. And then when we do that, what we do, according uh, to the way he teaches this, is the boulder becomes gravel. It doesn't become like vapor. It's still the same weight. But we can work a piece of gravel in this moment. We're not going to be completely crushed by one small piece of gravel. We can handle this moment. And this is really all we have. But because we in our minds have created sort of eternity and solidity out of some small moment, We've, we've solidified our problem. So if we can just simply see, oh, this right now, oh yeah, there's anxiety here. It's keeping it immediate. This we need to remind ourselves of all the time because we just so forget. It's such a training we have to think far into the future and make these big statements that aren't actually how it is. 
And then another thing to sort of bring into this teaching, there are those lovely teachings of, um, I think they're lovely, the uh, eight vicissitudes. The fact of life is on this realm that there are as many ups as downs. I should say the other way around. There are as many downs as ups. And we believe and expect and somehow have this standard of idealization that there are only supposed to be ups. And of course, who said that we're supposed to be always loving? Anyway, and we can so easily think, okay, I'm trying to get this thing going so that I will be this divine person and abide in this state where there will be no more criticism, no more cringing, no more fear. And this is completely not realistic. The heart at times can become very open, very flowing, very unafraid, very on the other person's wavelength, and then that changes and something else will happen. So just as we understand through our Vipassana practice how Anicca is all the time, we're not in control of all of that. It's more with our practice here, we are inclining, you'll hear this said and it has been said and you'll hear it many times, we're inclining the mind towards how to be an enlightened person. As um, Guy said last night, he said, we, in doing our practice, it's like we put ourselves there. We put ourselves in a state of lovingness. The way I've always said it is, is like we're mimicking being enlightened. It's like we're pretending. That's not a bad thing to be doing. That's actually much less harmful than doing almost anything else. And it's okay that it's, it isn't the real deal all the time. We can't make that happen. We can't make ourselves enlightened, but we can lean in this direction. But we mustn't be idealistic about it because we aren't all the time this way. There are all kinds of reasons why we're not. And so uh, it's the same thing as knowing that uh, life is in just moments. Life is also up and down. And at times we are much more loving and at times we're not. So our practice will be experienced at times as being flowing and connected and beautiful. And at times we'll be dry and at times we'll be the absolute opposite. And that's the way it is with us. Can we meet that with friendliness? Can we be okay about being merely mortal and having limits to our heart's capacity? Is that okay? Let's not turn this into a goal-oriented practice where we then judge it. So that's why we say so often, do not judge your practice, especially while you're in the middle of doing it. There's no measure to how this is. It isn't, oh, it's working, so therefore I can do it now. We mustn't go there. We just do the practice. It shows up when there's tension. It shows up when there's ease. That will all be revealed. That's not our business. We just do it. We learn, we see, and we learn how to be friendly with all these things we see. And that's how purification happens. It isn't that the things don't happen. It's that we don't add the second dart and believe in it and get clinging to, hating when it's a problem, yearning for when it's lovely. We just are able to say, oh, that's what's happening now. That's the purification. It's not in all that junk disappearing. It just doesn't matter that it's junk anymore. It's not so personal. It's just the stuff of being human. Our capacity grows to be able to accommodate ourselves. And as we can accommodate ourselves and all of our stuff, we can accommodate other people. We end up not taking it all so seriously. It's like that's 
That's how we are. We're delicate. We're vulnerable. Life's unpredictable. We're sensitive. We're going to die. We don't know when. Things are always shifting right under us. It's tricky. Can we be friendly with this? I wanted just to say before I end a little mention of my journey into metta myself, mostly for the newer people and to give you some encouragement. Um, I hated metta. First of all, for years I didn't even do it. It wasn't even taught it, so I didn't pay any attention. I just was doing concentration practice. And then um, I started listening, and I couldn't stand it because I could not like myself enough. My message as a child was that I was not good enough, and uh, I just couldn't do it. I just was like, it just brought up immediately the opposite, and so I believed the opposite. So I w and so then it was like, okay, benefactor, as we're taught. Well, benefactor... Guy had said how his granny was such a lovely woman. My grandmother wasn't. <laughs> she was very uh, aloof, arrogant, um, snotty. And her son had married below his social class. That's a big boo-boo. And so she never accepted my mother. And she never accepted her children. And she never picked me up. And so she was a completely unloving, harsh. I couldn't have Christmas presents until after the Queen's speech, which was at 3 p.m. on Christmas Day. <laughs> my other grandmother and my other, grand, my other grandparents had died before I was born. It just so happened. My family life wasn't very loving. And so when I would think of benefactors, the English teachers in the private schools are relatively frustrated spinsters on the whole. And that, you know, not particularly loving and wise and benign and, you know, inspiring and all those things that benefactors are supposed to be. So there weren't any there. wasn't in the family. Um, I had a hard time trying to find a benefactor at all when I started doing this practice. So I'd say, forget it. I can't do it for me. I can't. There's no benefit. Forget it. So I just would ignore for the longest time Meta. And I sort of happened in it by mistake, by being on a retreat and it was a six-weeks retreat, and I was now happy to be able to go to a six-week retreat because my son, and I for years had been a single mother, was now old enough that I could go away. So he was 16, so I could take a six-weeks retreat, which I'd been kind of like waiting for for some time. And what happened was two weeks, in the middle of six weeks, I was spent grieving the fact that he was now old enough that he didn't need me. <laughs> And my teacher wisely said, this is a big time in a mother's life, actually. And it's a very hard thing for your children who were yours, you know, to grow up and leave. And, and so this is real grief. And she gave me permission to really be with that. And I did. And I spent two weeks completely preoccupied with how much I love my son at all these ages that I've, I've zoomed forwards and backwards in my mind, our life together and so on. And gave myself to the loving of him and the loving of having loved him as a mother. And... No one ever used the word meta, but that's what it was. And it made me realize soon after that that this could be my benefactor. This was my benefactor. This is the person where I was loved and could love and open my heart completely. And I'd been doing it all along, but I hadn't thought that that fit into benefactor category. I just hadn't, it took me a while to understand. So that then really shifted my ability to start doing meta, which was a wonderful way in. So myself was a lot later. 
So even though the Buddha suggests the, the self first, because really deeply it is ourself we want to preserve and not our neighbors, you know, when, when it gets, push gets to shove. There's only a few lifeboat spaces left, you know, generally, <laughs> for most of us, it is me. But nevertheless, in doing this as a practice, I found that it wasn't, I couldn't do that very well. And then another little piece just to share with you that was so helpful for me in my able to make metta my own practice. I, again, this was a spontaneous thing in a retreat, and I was walking, doing walking practice outside, and... Um, it just sort of happened in the middle of my retreat, out of the blue. I didn't plan it at all. But I started talking to myself. And I just started talking like I was my own buddy, going for a walk, a stroll with myself. And I started saying things like, you know, you haven't done half badly, considering all those messages of shame and blame that your mother gave you all your life. I mean, you know, you haven't carried that on. You weren't like that to your kid. La, 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 la. There was this kind of friendly tone, just talking to myself about I was actually an okay person. It wasn't groovy and, you know, love. It was just friendly. It was accepting and reassuring and just had this kind of, it's okay, Heather, you're okay. You're actually a half-decent person. you got friends. You do a decent livelihood. You're honest. You don't steal. You pay your taxes. You know, you're an okay person. And that was such a revolutionary way of approaching myself. I had never been like that before. So then, I'll never forget, when I went in and sat after this, and it was a 45-minute period of walking, I just did this the whole time, I had a beautifully deep, quiet, calm opening ability to just be with myself because my heart was friendly. It was a gladdened heart. We talk about this practice is to gladden the heart. When the heart is glad, it relaxes. It can open. It can be with whatever. I could be with myself in a whole new way. And it wasn't orthodox meta. It wasn't may I be anything. It was you're okay. And that was so, it was, so, it was very uh, helpful for me. So I'm just offering this to, to uh, not to encourage an awful lot of trying a thousand different phrases and going and spending all day chatting to yourself because it's, you're supposed to do this. If you have your way of practicing, carry on. But just know that we do need to make this our own practice. And mine, as I said, was I sort of went into it blindfold and backwards in a way. And that's, that's some of the things that happened for me. So then I could sit and be able to say, may I be protected from harm? And really feel it, you know. And it's like, I don't want to be lost in blame and self-unworthiness. And that's what I consider harm. And may I not do that, fall into those states. That may I be safe from that. So those are just a couple of things I wanted to to share with you. Um, I guess I'll end with a poem. It's a nice thing to do. Oh, I have no, maybe I won't end with a poem. There's a little tiny story I must share with you. Very, just a sweet story. At supper tonight, we were having supper in the yurt, and uh, Jack Cornfield came, and he just told us this little story, so I get to tell it to you. It was so sweet. His daughter was just today driving back here, and um, she was at Larkspur, right where the ferry is at Larkspur. And the traffic had stopped and held up, and she looked, and she could see there was a lot of people looking and peering and stuff, and she got out and noticed there was some problem, hold up. There was a mother duck, and I don't know, a number of ducklings, I don't know, nine or ten, a number of ducklings. The mother was on the medium with some of the ducklings, and some of the other ducklings were on the side. 
trying to get to her and people were like with their cars. So she got out and she stopped the traffic and some other woman with her held the traffic up so that these little ducklings could get to their mother in the median. And when they got there, they had, she had to actually lift them up because they were too tiny, little fluffy yellow, to get them to the mother. So that was now solved and the traffic went on. And then the mother stepped down off the medium to cross the next lane to go to the water. And so then these ducklings had to follow her. And so the same thing happened again. So she stopped the traffic again and she shepherded the little ducklings. They went across the road and then they got to the, and there was a bigger curb and she had to lift all 11 baby ducklings up. By which time a few people further back who couldn't tell what's happening are sort of honking and yelling, but all the people nearby are cheering and clapping. <laughs> this is the bliss of blamelessness, as the Buddha called it. The sweetness of being able to be loving in some simple way, friendly to ducklings. Thank you for your attention. I hope this is helpful. This talk was given by Heather Martin at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 15, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive.